Welcome to the Whale Scout Podcast, everyone. My name is Whitney Negebauer, and today we are joined by Alexandra Morton, and she is the author of the new book, Not on My Watch, How a Renegade Whale Biologist Took on Governments and Industry to Save Wild Salmon. Thank you so much, Alexandra, for coming back and joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So many of our listeners are familiar with your work with captive orcas and with wild northern resident killer whales up in British Columbia and through your beautiful book, Listening to Whales. Um, Now, you have a new book out, and it focuses on your work protecting wild fish from the salmon farming industry. For those not familiar with your story, how did you go from studying whale behavior and communication to focus on salmon and the salmon farming industry? Well, basically, I was uh, I found the perfect place to study whales. It was the Broughton Archipelago, um, nestled between Knight Inlet and Kinkham Inlet, just uh, northeast of the north end of Vancouver Island. And I really, I, I planned to be there my whole life and to work with these whales as they came in and used the archipelago. Because it was so perfect because in Johnson Straits and the bigger bodies of water, you might get up to 100 orca on a day. I mean, it's a rare day, but, but generally there were several pods. But in these inlets, they broke down into their smallest divisible unit of basically mom and the kids. And so... Um, there was a little community there with a one-room school, which also worked for me because I had a, a young child. And then the salmon farming industry moved in. And at first I thought, oh, great, it'll help us keep our school open. There'll be people in the inlets, you know, in case I run into trouble because I was always running around in a small boat by myself with small children. But um, very rapidly, the fishermen saw a problem. They, they, in many ways, were my teachers. And so I listened to them and then the farms put acoustic harassment devices on the farms in about 1995 and the whales I was working with left. And you don't know that the first day or the first week or even the first year that they've really gone. Uh, But a few years into it, I realized they had left because the sounds were a threat to their hearing. Then we got toxic algae blooms then we had Atlantic salmon in our rivers and we had sea lice and we had virus outbreaks. And basically, um, I just couldn't let this go, Uh, mostly because the industry said they were going to be good for us, and the government said they would be good for us, and they looked so benign, but they were so dangerous because they're feedlots, and so they take fish and they stop them from migrating, which is, you know, completely disrupts the biology of these salmon, plus they used Atlantic salmon, which increased the risk of introducing pathogens from the Atlantic, which it appears they have done. And then they prevent the predators from getting in. Well, the predators are so important to every wild population because they take out the sick and the contagious. They remove them. And so you don't get epidemics. And uh, and yet these farms broke all these natural laws and they increased the levels of sea lice, which is naturally a, a benign parasite that is on all salmon. It's not on the young salmon in the numbers we see around the farms. They amplified the bacteria and they amplified the viruses. And so you've got young wild salmon coming out of their rivers, entering the ocean and entering this toxic environment. I explain it to people. um, Imagine walking your child to the infectious disease ward of a hospital on her way to school. It's exactly the dynamic that is going on here. 
And because the industry looked so harmless on the surface and because they had such good public relations people and because the government was so uh, encouraging of the industry, nobody wanted to hear me. And so I started with writing letters and then I started taking the industry to court. I wrote over 20 scientific papers on their sea lice and their viruses. Uh, I went to Norway. I spoke to their shareholders. And eventually, I just engaged in activism. And with the local First Nations, we occupied the farms for 280 days through the winter of 2017-2018. And that started change. Uh, First Nations took control. And now they're starting to take the farms out and the, and the change on the wild fish is just, it's, it's recognizable immediately. So last spring was my first year of looking at these little fish without the farms around some of the sites. And uh, I've been doing this for 20 years, <laughs> since 2001. And they were beautiful. They were silvery and blue and deep black eyes and super sassy and fat and so um i'm i'm hoping that that we can bring these fish back and move the industry onto land that's amazing and really encouraging to hear um you know in the book you describe many experiences of loss you know witnessing captive orca corky lose her calves the guilt over leaving those whales to study their wild families up in bc and later the loss of your husband, how did those experiences shape your decision to stay in Echo Bay where you were studying whales even after they had left? Well, it, I mean, a lot of things happened along those lines. For one, when you experience loss, you become more compassionate. Um, I didn't understand tragedy until I experienced it. Of course, you really can't. Um, but also what happened is this was my home and women all over the world respond in the same way as I did and still do. And that is that we, we fight. I mean, the men are fabulous in that they go exploring and, and I mean, so do some women, obviously, but they tended to move around more. And this was really true of my uh, whale research colleagues that were men. They were going to Antarctica and jumping ice flows in their skidoos and going down, you know, into all kinds of situations that were fabulously exciting. But my role was really to stay in one place. And I, I still, to this day, feel terrible. I, you know, I think about Corky in that pen and it's just harsh and I don't really know what this, I really don't know what the solution is for her individually. But I walked away from that. I was a young woman and, and I've matured into a grandmother now and I'm not going to let these whales be displaced from their territory without putting up as much of a fight as I can. And it's solution oriented. I'm not out to reprimand or teach anybody. I don't think you can change adult behavior really, but you know, I feel like a grandmother in this situation in just in terms of, okay, I know who's been naughty. I know who's been nice. Some of you just need to step away from the fish right now. This has to end. Um, and, and, you know, not, I'm not into disciplining anybody. This just has to end because wild salmon feed the trees that make the oxygen we breathe. They feed the whales, yes. They also feed a hundred species. They're also feeding the trees that are 
pulling the carbon out of our atmosphere that like you know our lives depend on now so so these things are very very important and uh, I'm happy to say we're having some success but really you know two steps forward and a half a step backwards is the way we're still moving and According to your work, what is some of the most damaging aspects of the salmon farms? And for those who may not be familiar with salmon, you know, what's the difference between farm salmon and hatchery fish? Uh, okay, so first question, the, the problem with the salmon farms is they amplify pathogens. They amplify viruses, bacteria, and um, parasites, and then they release them at levels uh, that, that the wild fish just aren't designed to survive. They've never experienced. Um, so all the industry needs is a hard barrier. That's it. But of course, they don't want to do that because they're about the only farmers that don't shovel their manure. They're they're releasing tons of waste per day. Um, hatchery fish are not a good idea. Uh, wild salmon do not need us to help them make eggs. They got that. They can do that. And the importance of wild salmon is that if you think about these fish, so they go out into the open ocean, they collect the energy from the sun hitting the open ocean, then they come home, and then they, they enter a river. So this is a fish that has been out in the dark, cool ocean in this big school, and suddenly they're going to enter this rushing river. It's shallow. There's bears. There's seagulls. There's eagles. There's fishermen. They can't feed, and they have to swim up a mountain while they're growing their eggs and the sperm. And yet, even given all those demands, the males use some of their precious energy to dress up. They grow stripes, turn red, their heads go green, they get teeth, their whole body shape changes. I mean, it's incredible. Why would they do that? The reason is they're giving, they're advertising. They're saying to the females, hey, I went out into the open ocean and I came back with all this extra energy that I could do all this with my body. And the female's like, yeah, no, 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 you. And if you travel up the Fraser River, for example, and you look at Fraser River sockeye, they are completely different fish from the bottom to the top of that river. Go to the Adams River and there are these gorgeous deep-bodied fish, just huge, dark red you go to the Chilco and, oh, they're like streamlined bullets because they've had to go a lot further. And then you go all the way up to the early Stewart and they're tiny because these are the only fish that could make it a thousand kilometers up the river. And that's all based on female choice. And when people decide which fish breeds with which fish, you ruin up to 700 genes with every generation. And so if we want a fish that can track climate change as the rivers changes. If we want a fish that can keep on making fish, whether we have funding for hatcheries or not, wild salmon, wild salmon, wild salmon, wild salmon. They are, they are the fish that we all love. And um, I know, you know, I know people that run hatcheries are, are wonderful people and they care deeply about the fish, but it just doesn't work. You don't make fish that can come back naturally on their own. So, I'm a big proponent of uh, wild salmon and, and the amazing science that it's emerging that we would be able to restore them with. I think sometimes a lot of the hesitancy almost comes from a, a loss of, um, of faith in nature and that in nature can take care of itself still. 
Um, how do you think that the northern resident killer whales and also the critically endangered southern resident killer whales have been impacted by this decades-long um, use of the, the waterways by farming salmon? Well, you know, there's that remarkable paper published uh, about the female orca from the southern residents who are unable to carry their calves full term or, or even have successful births due to, among other things, the loss of Chinook salmon from the Fraser River. And if you look at these farms that are clustered on the migration route of these fish, they are virtually all infected with a virus called Piscine orthoreovirus. Many scientists think it's from Norway. Uh, and they also have found that when it gets into the Chinook salmon, it causes their red blood cells to explode en masse. Okay, well, that's definitely not good. And then there's the sea lice. And then there's the mouth rot bacteria. So uh, at this point, based on evidence and the science, I think that salmon farms have had a catastrophic impact on salmon. I don't think we would be seeing nearly the declines we're seeing now if it was not for this industry. And there was a remarkable decision on the 18th of December by the Minister of Fisheries here, and I'm in the position for the first time in you know, 35 years of this fight uh, of being highly appreciative of what my government has done. And uh, so she said no, that the salmon farms could not restock 19 farms right in the Discovery Islands, which is the narrowest portion of, of the migration route of all the salmon leaving the Fraser River. And I've been down there studying them. I'm going to be down there again in a few weeks. And uh, this will be the first time they'll be going through these channels with no farms. And I'll see how many lice they have and what kind of viruses they have now. And, uh, uh, of course, we're in court <laughs> next week because the, the salmon farming companies want to fight the Canadian government now to to reverse this decision. But... Uh, Hopefully they lose. Right. Is that the one step forward and one step back that you're mentioning? Yeah. <laughs> That's it. However, we have gone forward. But the, the problem is that the salmon stocks are going down so fast. So, you know, the Fraser River sockeye run is lower than anybody even imagined it could be. When you go to the West Coast to Clockwood Sound, uh, where a lot of U.S. fish travel, um, their Chinook runs are down into the single digit. Uh, so, but I just want to make sure people realize there's other rivers in British Columbia that are flourishing, like the sockeye that go in through Alberni Inlet on the west coast of Vancouver Island came back at a third more than was forecast. There's pink salmon runs that are doing hugely well. So it tells you that the ocean is still able to make fish, the rivers are still able to make fish, something else is going on. And in a case like this, uh, you have to do everything you can do. And the thing about the farms is you just remove them and that whole process is over. It, it, it is the biggest removable impact. I also think it is the biggest impact, but it is the biggest removable impact. And so we have to try it because uh, in this day and age to just say, oh yeah, no, we're just going to let the wild salmon go down. You know, you might as well just rip the power cords out of the side of your house this whole province is going to dim. The trees will grow less well. 
We're going to lose our whales. We'll lose our tourism industry. We lose food security, you know, on and on and on. Um, and, and I just want to, you know, mention to your listeners that there's this phenomenal science that is developing in, in our government, in uh, Fisheries and Oceans Canada, by a, a, an amazing researcher, Dr. Christy Miller, that reads the immune system of salmon. And so what you can do is you can, as the fish travel, you can go to the head of the Fraser River and then intervals down the Fraser River and up the coast and take little tiny non-lethal samples of their fins. And with this teeny little piece of sample, the fish can tell you how it's doing. Is the water too warm? Do they, are they facing a, a bacteria or a virus or a parasite? You know, is the pH off? And as the science develops, probably different pollutants will show up in their immune system and, you know, starvation. And so in this way, the fish is talking to us. And the remarkable thing is you can look at that data and you can go, oh, I think we need to remove that farm. Or I think we need to release more water from this dam so that the water's cooler for this section of the river at this time. And then the next year you can go back and you can ask the fish, did we make it better for you or not? And the fish can tell us. And that's where you can turn them on. If it is at all possible to bring these fish back, if you make the fish the authority, well, you can fix this problem. And you also, the, the, the remarkable thing is, is what's good for the salmon is good for us. We need clean water. And uh, so, so if we listen to these fish, if they become our guide, then we benefit ourselves. And, you know, it's just win, 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 win situation. And if you really want to grow salmon, you know, put it in a tank, take the waste, use the waste to grow a plant crop, which people are doing, um, and just go that route. But cheap and dirty is over because, I mean, your listeners know more than most. It is time to use everything we know right now to, to preserve the natural system that is around us that's keeping us alive. A lot of your book focuses on strategy and all the different ways that you have been trying to get salmon farms out of BC. Um, you know, first it was using science, regulation, lawsuits, and really ultimately you decided that becoming an activist was important. Can you share you know, why you believe being an activist is so important to you? Uh, well, this is based on evidence. So as you said, I tried everything and finally, um, Paul Watson uh, put a message up on Facebook that he was sending me a ship. And I immediately messaged him back, uh, <laughs> what do you mean you're sending me a ship? I, I, I was trying so hard to get my science accepted that I thought uh, an association with the Sea Shepherd Society and Paul Watson was going to, you know, prevent that. But then, well, he didn't take the post down. And I thought about it for about a week. And I talked to... A, you know, we all have the wise people in our lives that we run ideas past. And, and so I talked to them. And in the end, I was like, okay, let's try this. Nothing else has worked. And the, the arrival of that boat and what happened afterwards is the reason I sat down to write this book. Because all the information was there. All the players were there. The situation didn't change. But somehow this beautiful ship and what happened. So one First Nation leader, um, uh, hereditary chief, George Kwok's sister, Junior, got on the boat 
And due to a set of circumstances, he decided, I'm going on that farm and I'm going to stick a camera in and I'm going to see what is in there. And he went on in his regalia. And of course, the farmers were like, no, 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 you can't come. And he just kind of went into granddad mode and was like, yeah, I know, I understand, but I am going to do this. (laughs) And he went to every single farm. And then other nations saw what was in the farms. And then, you know, a remarkable young man said, I don't know what the rest of you guys are going to do, but I'm going to go occupy this farm until it's moved. And it just, it was like this triple fuse that lit. And in the end, uh, First Nation leadership said, okay, okay, we got to deal with this. And the, and the provincial government was, yes, yes, I agree. We, ha- we can't have, because we were building houses on the farms and erecting solar panels. And it was mostly young women. And they had like an inflatable unicorn in the pens that they were floating in. I mean, it just... For the farmers, it was like getting out of control, although it was very careful and it was very honorable and there was no vandalism. Um, And in the end, after a year of internal closed door wrangling, which I wasn't privy to, came out the other end and and the First Nations were in control. And they began saying, okay, that farm goes first, then that farm, then that farm, then that farm. And they worked with me on that because I was looking at their fish going by the farms. I knew where where the fish were getting hurt the most and we're we're seeing result. So I don't think activism is the first tool, but my goodness, if you are honorable with it and peaceful and you have a truly um, valid message, and by that I mean you can't just scream. Um, You can't just scream, you know, change. You have to have the plan. But then if you put your body in the way, and you don't move, you can cause that change if enough people rally around you. And so allies, incredibly important. So there was so much that I learned in this whole process. I thought, you know, at first I really just saw it as a field guide to what do you do when the corporation comes to town and starts to ruin your world? How do you respond? And... Um, and so it's a, it's a dark story of failure after failure after failure. Uh, but now, um, you know, we are progressing towards some hope. Whether it's too late, I don't know. But I do know that giving up, you know, then you guarantee it's too late and you, you don't get a good result. So I'd like to read a quote from the book and you know, it's about how you describe working alongside and supporting these indigenous-led campaigns. The hardest lesson I learned was understanding that when I looked into the eyes of a First Nation person, I saw someone I wanted as a friend. They saw a member of the race they hated for trying to exterminate them. Starting from that realization, we began to work better together. What advice do you have for those that are interested in either orca recovery or just really any campaign to, you know, stop pipelines or climate change? Yes. Well, if you uh, if you want to do any of those things, you do you do need to talk to the nation whose territory you are in. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the rules are everywhere, but in Canada. First Nation governments are recognized as federal governments. They have to go to court sometimes to get that affirmed and remind everybody, but it but that is the reality here. However, so 
initially I was super confident that I knew the best. And my approach was basically, hey, you should do this. Well, <laughs> very few people like it when a stranger comes up to them and says, hey, you should do this. And I would recommend nobody ever say that to anybody, but particularly do not say it to First Nations. The better approach is to say, if you need help, I'm here. And I offer these things. And then you just have to wait. That really is the, the only way. And be just sensitive to the cues that you're getting from them, which are confusing. I got so battered. Um, but it just, I, <laughs> my eye was on the horizon and was on these fish. And, and to realize that when you get hurt by people who have been hurt, well, you can decide to go off and have a pout and, and walk away and say, oh, that, that was just awful. I'm not going to go through that again. Or you can say, okay, I got hurt. I'm still here. Um, I'm here and ready to help. And that is a very powerful thing to do is just take it, take it. And of course there are limits and you all have to decide what your limits are. But, um, I, I'm durable, <laughs> so, and I really want these fish. And I, even the First Nations who I had the most painful experiences with, I loved their bravery. I loved their fierceness. Just like I love it in a grizzly bear or a transient orca. And if it was directed at me for a moment, well, that's because I put myself in the line of fire but I still had enormous respect for them. And so, um, yeah, my relationship with First Nations is still rocky. It's also really good, and we are saving salmon. Could you give us an update of where we stand today the best that you can and how people can support your work? Well, Washington State has... Are you, are you coming from Washington State? Yes, we are. That's what I thought. Washington State led the way, and so you outlawed Atlantic Salmon Farms. Sadly, the company Cook Aquaculture is now trying to do the same with Steelhead, which is going to have the same result of amplifying disease. Um, and, and yet, there are no farms operating in, in Puget Sound right now. So that's a huge, huge advance for, for the fish that leave your area. Unfortunately, the fish that leave Washington State go through British Columbia, and so the removal of the 19 salmon farms in the Discovery Islands is going to have an incredibly beneficial impact. Um, as well, there's another 17 farms going out of the Broughton Archipelago. And so uh, we are in a moment, of, it's basically a power struggle, and it always has been. Um, and what you can do is to, I'd love it if you would just write to our Minister of Fisheries in Canada, Bernadette Jordan, just Google her name and you'll get her email address. And thank her um, for the whales, for your children, for yourselves, however you see it. But she needs to know. She did an extraordinary thing when she said, hey, these 19 farms, you can't put farm salmon in them anymore. And she's taking a very, uh, you know, she's taking quite a bit of abuse for that. She's in court right now with the industry uh, because of that decision. And um, I would just love to see, you know, a bit of a hand extended across the border because Canada does care about what the U.S. thinks and does. Obviously, it's very important. <laughs> Every time you guys elect a president, it really affects us up here. 
uh, and we're very appreciative of the progress down there recently. Um, and so that's important. I have a website. It's alexandramorton.ca. And there's so many words in my book that I couldn't put pictures in. So the pictures are on the website, and there's also a donate button if you're interested. But um, one of the most important groups down in Washington State is Wild Fish Conservancy in terms of uh, working to protect salmon and coming up with fabulous ideas and going to court and doing the science. So um, Wild Fish Conservancy, I, I would support them if, if I lived in Washington State. Wonderful. Thank you so much for those insights. Um, again, the book is called Not On My Watch, How a Renegade Whale Biologist Took on Governments and Industry to Save Wild Salmon. Um, in the U.S., I was able to uh, pre-order a copy on Amazon. It is being published by Penguin Random House in Canada. And I will provide a link in the comments of this podcast for um, um, where you can purchase a copy of the book, whether you are in the U.S. or Canada. Um, Alexandra, thank you so much for talking with us today, and we wish you the very best. Yeah, thank you, and thank you to everybody who's helping look after those Southern residents. I'm so glad you had a little girl whale born recently, and I certainly follow it very closely, so, so thank you. Because if those whales go extinct, it'll be the first time that we're on a first-name basis with every single animal in a population that went extinct. And, um, you know, that's, in some ways, that's progress because they're not just whales, they are individuals. And uh, so thank you guys so much. And thank you for all of your work. Have a great day. Have a great day.